Good morning. I'll ask Chris if he would come and read for us Romans 10. Romans 10, I'm sorry, it's not 11, Romans 10. Okay, reading from Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. For I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. The righteousness is to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But if the righteousness that comes by from faith speaks like this, do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart God, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord is rich to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How welcome are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. But all did not obey the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. For their voice has gone out all the, to all the earth, and their words to the inhabitants of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who are not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who are not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. This is God's word. I'd like to get you to keep your finger on this text, and if you would too, if you would turn to, we, w we shan't read it now, but if you would turn your fingers to, uh, or rather turn your Bible to, uh, to John 3. So keep your fingers on John 3, as well as Romans 10, and we'll hear from the Lord. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that this book of Romans is has been opening our eyes to stuff that perhaps we've never seen before, but it 
has all along been there, but we have not dredged into it. So thank you for this season in the life of our church where we could open the scriptures, this book especially, uh, this profound book of the, of the book of Romans, and Lord, to be confronted with all these things that you've been teaching us the last many weeks. We are grateful, Father, for opening our eyes. And again, this morning we would ask, Lord, that you yeah, open our eyes to behold wondrous things that come from your word. So, Lord, be our teacher, be our guide as we look into your word. And, uh, Father, may we not just be hearers deceiving ourselves, but may we be doers of the word, bringing you glory. So teach and speak, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been speaking about God's sovereignty for quite a while now, going through this book of Romans. And I've been speaking, especially the last two weeks, about an area that some of you might be exposed to for the very first time in your life, I'm not sure, about the fact that God elects certain people to salvation, that God appoints certain people to be saved, that God predestined people to be saved. Uh, it may be new for some of us, and it's okay. We learn as we go. So this morning we are faced with this text. Even as Chris read out to us, you can just see how difficult this is <laughs> for anyone to come before Romans 10 and to try to make sense of Romans 10. So I shall not make this a difficult task for you or for myself. I'm going to choose a very small area that I found jumped into me this week, so I want to talk about it. And that's this that he says, so far, he has talked to us in Romans 8, 9, and 10. And this morning on chapter 10, he's going to take a little different bent from where we have been. So far, as we have seen in chapter 9, he has said something rather profound. So if you would turn to Romans 9, we were quite troubled, some of us, I believe, last week. This verse that says, Jacob I love, Esau I hate, even while both were still in their mother's womb. God already predestined to hate Esau and to love Jacob, even before they saw the light of day, literally. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 9. Salvation does not depend on the man who wills, but on the God who has mercy. And then verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. And verse 23, those of us whom God calls to salvation are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Romans 9 warms my heart very profoundly. I read it through again and again and again as I read Romans 8 again and again and again. And every time I read it, my heart is warmed with this profound depth of a sense of gratefulness that God should have done this for me. Very strong teaching. You can't run away from it. I wonder how I never saw that all these many years. It's right there. God's sovereign election in electing some people to salvation and some people to damnation. It's all right here. Now, all that in chapter 9. And now here in chapter 10, the very next chapter, he tells us to go out and preach 
to go around and teach that people may hear, that people may come to be saved. Look at our text this morning. Look at verse 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, isn't this quite convoluting? He has just told us in chapter 9 that he has already elected some to salvation. He's already chosen them. They are vessels of grace. They will come to faith. Now, in the very next chapter, he says, you've got to go out and preach. You've got to go out and teach. So, unless they're here, they will never come to faith. Is God sovereign or not? Why is he suddenly giving us this task of going out to preach? So perhaps the FQA of theology, the most frequently asked question in theology, and it pops up all the time, <laughs> is this. If God is sovereign, if he's going to do whatever he's going to do at the end of it all, whether we pray or not, whether we evangelize or not, why is he making such a strong call on us that we go out and teach and preach that others may come to faith? What God desires always comes to pass. You never have an instant of God desiring something and that thing not come to pass. But if God is sovereign, if he elects whom he elects, why pray? Why preach? If some are already predestined to be saved, then without our preaching, without our teaching, they will be saved. But on the contrary, if they are predestined to damnation, no amount of preaching, no amount of praying will bring them to God. So this is the dilemma before all of us. First, and I want to spit this out very clearly, the Bible teaches both things equally strongly, equally consistently, and that is this. God elects some people to salvation, and you must go out and preach, you must go out and teach. Both are taught very consistently in the Bible. Let's explore a few of these teachings. Let's explore some places in the Bible where these two doctrines are taught almost side by side in the same very passage. And this is the reason why I ask you to turn uh, to John chapter 3. It's a story about Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus. Now look at what he tells Nicodemus in verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look at 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now what makes this so profound is that all this call to belief follows straight away, immediately, from verses 1 to 10. And 1 to 10, Jesus is talking to a non-believer. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee whose belief system is so totally out of whack with his own teaching. And so he says to Nicodemus something that you would normally not hear from someone who is speaking about Jesus to another person, and that is this that it does not depend on you to come to Christ. Imagine me going out to talk to a second-hand car dealer about Jesus, whom I did last week. <laughs> yeah, but imagine me talking to him about Jesus and then 
plopping it on his lap, saying to him, but it's not, it does not depend on you whether you are saved or not. It depends on God. Very strange that Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, a non-believer, trying to evangelize him, should say to him, it does not depend on you ultimately. Having just said this to him, he then in the very next breath says to him, unless you believe, you will not come to faith. Can you see how convoluting it is? On the one hand, telling him it does not depend on him, and then on the other hand says, unless you believe, you will perish. See, the two tensions all the time, you discover it all the time, every time, everywhere you go in what Jesus says. Look at verse 6. That which is of the flesh will always be of the flesh. From flesh, you never get anything spiritual. Human people are totally depraved. They cannot come to Christ. So on the one hand, Jesus teaches the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And on the other hand, he tells Nicodemus that he has to come to faith or he will never see the kingdom of God. This is such a marvelous passage because the two teachings are laid right there next to one another. I want you to turn to Matthew 11 now. Look at Matthew 11, verse 27. It speaks about God's sovereignty. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Matthew 11, 27. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You will never know the Son if the Son does not will for you to believe in him. But that doesn't depend on us. The only way anyone can know the Son is the one to whom the Son will reveal himself to. Now, this is verse 27. But look at the very next verse 28. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, very puzzling. Just telling them that no one comes to God unless the Son draws him. And then in the, in the very next breath, he says, You come, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Turn to John 6. See the same thing again. He has just fed the 5,000. He has just fed the 5,000. In verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. Now that means believing. He who believes in me, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he's asking people to come to him. And then in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Again, you see the two teachings going on side by side. He has just told them, that they have got the responsibility to come to faith. They've got to choose to believe. And then in the very next verse, he says, all those whom the Father gives will come to me. See, in the heart and mind of Jesus, these two parallel truths run in a parallel manner. One, the Father gives whom the Father gives. And two, you need to come to Jesus. And now we go to our text in Romans 9 and 10. Last week, chapter 9, strong teaching on divine sovereignty. Unless God chooses, no one comes. And then to the, tonight, uh, this morning in chapter 10, he says, how will they come unless someone calls? How will they believe whom they have never heard? And how will they hear 
unless they have a preacher coming to them. But how could anyone preach unless they are sent? So I trust that you sense the problem in front of us. But before I go on, there is, to make matters worse, a related problem. All this talk about sending preachers, about preaching to people, will give you the impression that people do have the free will, finally, to either choose or to reject what they have heard. And this is where it gets very troubling. If God is sovereign, how could anyone be free to choose? If you and I are free to choose, then God is not sovereign. This is the problem that the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre raised in such a graphic way. If people are free, there is no God. He's right. If there is God, you're not free. So this is the issue in front of us. All right, let me explain how we can go from here. People who believe in free will, and let me say that I used to be that person very strongly, believe that sinful, unregenerated people can actually come to faith in God, can actually make a choice, can actually choose to believe in God. And I used to believe that very strongly myself. But when I searched the scriptures again, I couldn't find a single shred of evidence in scripture that sinful people can make a willful choice to come to Jesus. Instead, consistently everywhere in scripture, we are told that human people are spiritually dead. They don't have free will because their will is no longer free. Their will is under lock and key, under bondage. Martin Luther puts it very well. The human will is under slavery. The human will is no longer free. We will always choose what is depraved, always. Because you're under bondage, you're under slavery. Instead, consistently, everywhere in Scripture, we are told that human people, if God does not regenerate them through the Holy Spirit, none of us would have been here this morning. What did Jesus say? No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. How come I never saw that verse all these many, many years in my own life? No one can come. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws. And then again in uh, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. And then Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. This is God's word from the Bible. He says no one seeks after God. It is God who comes seeking for us. Nobody on their own steam. They may appear to be seeking after God, like this car dealer I'm talking about right now, or I'm talking to right now. He appears to be seeking God. It's actually God prompting him to seek him. So there is no free will. Human will is held under bondage. Human people have the propensity to always choose what is evil. Because of original sin, all of us are under the bondage of sin. We cannot break out from the yoke of slavery. Only when Christ sets a person free, will that person be truly free. That's why the word of God says in John, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. But not until then. Your will is no longer free. Your will is held under captive, as I've said. By nature, you're a slave. Now, this does not mean that you cannot make real choice. 
you did choose what to have breakfast this morning, didn't you? You did. And that was a real choice. So it does not mean that we cannot make real, tangible choices in life. It does not mean that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to function in life. We've got to choose certain things to do in any given time. But the choice you make will be tainted with sin. God still allows you to make real choice. God does never force you to make the choices that you don't want to make. So every single day, you freely make some choices that you want to choose to make. So God is not forcing you, but he uses his sovereign power to bring what he wants, even through the choices that you make. Good example, Joseph in the Bible. His brothers made some very evil choices in life to do him in to sell him into slavery, which they did. And to cut the story short, many years later, what did Joseph say to his brothers? He says to his brothers, you meant evil for me, but God meant good, Genesis 50, 20. It was God who decreed that Joseph be sold into slavery. Looks like it was the brothers doing. And the brothers looked like they had freedom to do that to, his, to him, which they did. They chose freely to dig a pit and to put the boy into the pit, which they did. But God sovereignly uses that for his own good. What is the most horrendous act that people have done in human history? I think you can answer that question. What is the most horrendous thing that human people have done in human history? Putting the Son of God to death putting the Son of God, crucifying him, torturing him, beating him up. That's the most horrendous act in human history. But did you not know that even in that act, human people did freely what they chose freely to do, which they did. Caiaphas meant it for evil. Pilate meant it for evil. The Pharisees meant it for evil. Jewish authorities meant it for evil. The soldiers meant it for evil. But above and beyond all that human beings plotted and schemed, above all that, God was behind to ensure that their plans were carried out in accordance to his sovereign purpose. R.C. Sproul says it's very strange that Friday being the, such a worst day, that horrendous Friday in history, it could have easily been the worst Friday in human history, bad Friday, and yet you and I call it Good Friday. And Sproul says the reason we call it Good Friday is because horrendous as it is, God was working out his plans and his purposes to bring about good. And, and why would it not be good? Look at us sitting here this morning. It is good. It is good. I can speak for myself. I could well be behind bars this morning because I know the depravity of my own heart. But we're here. We're here because of that good Friday where his blood was shed so that we might be set free. So you could, see, you could say that God ordains sin sinlessly. Or you could, you could put it this way. You could, you could put it this way. You could say that God ordains that sin be and remain sinless. How he did that, I haven't got a clue. I don't understand how God could ordain that evil be 
without himself having a tinge of evil slapped on him. So even though God is sovereign, you and I have real choices that we can make. But behind those choices, God's using it for his own glory. Do I have the power to choose at this very minute to stop talking and step down from this podium? I do. I do. I really do have the freedom to right at this minute not finish the sermon but instead step down and sit there. But what if God does not will that I do that? I don't stand a chance. My feet couldn't even be lifted up from the ground to take that first step. I couldn't. Could he strike me down dead this very minute? Absolutely, he could. So whilst I do have real choice to step down right now from this podium, but in everything that I do, in everything that I, that I say, in everything that I think about, God is behind my thinking, God is behind my willing, God is behind my moving, God is behind my working. So no, God's sovereignty does not mean that people have no freedom. Does not mean that. Let me push on. God's sovereignty also does not mean that we should not pray or that we should not evangelize. God has elected certain people to salvation and he has elected you to be the means for her to be saved. The God who has designed for Samantha to come to Christ this week has also designed that two of Samantha's friends will be praying for her this week. So God, yes, designs people to come to faith, but he also kicks in place how that person might come to faith. And part of the process, people come to faith, is by other people praying for their friends. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, the two go together. If God has decreed certain individuals to come to believe in him, he would have also decreed that some other people be praying for that person. Sam Storms, some of us have heard the writings or read the writings of Sam Storms. He gave a hypothetical example. He says, for example, on August the 18th, Jerry will come to faith in Jesus. And on the evening of August the 18th, Jerry will come to faith in Jesus. But for Jerry to come to faith on the evening of the 18th of August, he would have ordained that you, being the closest friend of Jerry, be praying and fasting for Jerry the whole day on August the 17th, the day before that. So God ordains both for him to come to faith and God ordains that you be praying for him to come to faith. Now, what if you fail to pray on the 17th for Jerry? Will he come to faith in Christ on the 18th? I believe, I believe that is a mute question. It's a mute question. It, 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 it's not a question. Because God ordains him to come to faith on the 18th and God ordained that you be praying for him on the 17th. It is not for us to know why we pray for certain people on certain times of the day. But once in a while you get someone coming with a testimony that I prayed for that person because I couldn't sleep at night. 
And six days later, I found that she was, at that very hour, in a dire position, in a dire situation where she needed someone to bail her out. And through your prayer, God bailed her out. So in some sense, in some shape, we don't fully understand how God works, but God works both in the one to be saved and in the one who will be an instrument for that person to come to salvation. So in a limited human way of speaking, you could say that God's will for Jerry is dependent upon your praying. Now, I want to say that very carefully because that's only a limited human way of understanding. How could we say that Jerry's coming to faith is dependent upon your praying? So that's not the best way to talk about it, but it's the closest way we humans can talk that way. But you and I will never know what God has ordained to do by means of our prayer. All we need is to obey the command to pray for people who have not yet come to faith. Muslim friends in our midst, Buddhist friends in our midst, secular humanists in our midst, God is graciously working out his plan for them to come to faith. We simply need to know that this is God's appointed means, that God is using people like us to pray, to fast, to share the good news. Now, back to the original question, the FQA. How could we reconcile God's sovereignty with human freedom <laughs> and human responsibility? I have bad news for you, and that is this. I can't. I can't reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibilities. Nobody can. But that's not to say that people have not tried. <laughs> scores upon scores of theologians, Bible scholars, preachers, writers, commentators have all had a go at trying to harmonize the two. Has any one of them succeeded? I don't think so. At least I haven't come across any of the writings. You could never reconcile the two apparent contradictions. How God can be sovereign and things will turn out the way he planned for it, and how can, you can be responsible for those things to come about. We just have to live, leave them as they sit. You just have to be content with your inability to get it. And it's hard for our human pride, and this week my human pride has been shattered again because plowing through all this material, I come to the conclusion that I can't make sense of this. All I want to say is the divine sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility are two truths equally taught in scriptures. And as, as I've set out at the beginning to show you in many instances in the passages of the Bible, the two are there side by side, virtually two verses apart from one another. But you know something? My inability to reconcile those two things say nothing about God at all. It just speaks about how finite my mind is how hopelessly finite my mind is. But the Bible simply leaves us with a command. The Bible simply leaves us with a mandate, a commission to go out into the world to preach the gospel. And God will hold you responsible for not preaching. But if you do, you will be rewarded. Look at verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, good tidings to the gospel. That verse is lifted up from Isaiah 52, by the way. So this is the last word on the matter, and that is this. Do what you need to be doing. We have in our midst people who are 
passionate about mission, about going out, about going out to distant lands to share the word with people who perhaps would not hear the gospel at all if we do not obey. And that's a right spirit. But I want, I want to end with this beautiful benediction. Look at verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom of the knowledge of God. It is reminding us that you are finite and that I am finite and that we will never fully understand Romans 10. Never. But what is incumbent upon us is to go out to teach and to preach. God's judgments are unsearchable. God's ways are unfathomable. In the end, we simply need to submit. So this is a very strange week for me. Uh, and the sermon is the shortest sermon I've ever preached, perhaps. But as I struggle with Romans 10, this is all I come up with. And that is this. We must accord to God his sovereignty to choose whom he will choose. And we must go on doing what we must do, our part of the equation. We must preach, we must teach, we must evangelize, we must witness. I want to close with this call. And that is this. <clears throat> For Christ's sanctuary, you could do everything you want to do here. You could have the best Sunday school. You could have a thriving youth group. You could have great mother's group. You can have good home groups meeting mid-week, week after week. But if we don't do the one thing you and I must be doing, then we might just as well fold up and stop existing. And what is that? That's the Great Commission. That's, Romans, that's Matthew 28. Go into the world to preach the gospel, to teach, and to lead men and women to come to Jesus. So let me take this chance to urge you that on any, any given week, you and I must be about sharing Jesus with those who do not know him. You and I must be at any one time having 10 people whose names are in your heart to be praying for and to be actively looking out for opportunities to talk to them that they might come to Christ. It's about time we have another baptism in our church. We haven't had a baptism for a long, long, long time now. And I remember telling you that there is a church in South America where in any given three-month period when there is no baptism, the people will all go into fasting and repentance because they realize that this is a sin. How could we exist for three months and see no baptism? We have been plowing through two years, I think, or more without a single baptism. And I think, don't think God is looking down at us, being very pleased with us with regards to this particular thing I'm talking about. Of course, he may be pleased with you in other areas in your life where you have been very sacrificial, and you have been, but this is the great commission. God is calling us to reach out. So please, let me take this chance to remind us that if we are about nothing at all, if we do nothing at all, do one thing, and that is talk to men and women to lead them to Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we want to bless you for this time together. A difficult passage with an attempt to make it easy. Lord, we don't have all the answers. We don't understand how you could sovereign, sovereignly choose people before the foundation of this earth, and yet you could call us out to make disciples. But we will simply obey you 
And so, Father, we end with this note that you are rebuking us, you are challenging us, you are calling us to do first things first, to put the main thing, the main thing. So, Lord, if we are about nothing at all, help us to be about talking to men and women and leading them to you. How beautiful are the feet of him who spreads good news. Lord, may our feet be beautiful that way, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.